The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is the highest court in the Commonwealth and the oldest appellate court in the nation, an institution shaped by the skilled attorneys who argue before it. Welcome to the Standard of Review. Hi, and welcome to the Standard of Review by Scoba Block. I'm your host, Corey Woods. I recently sat down with attorney Terry Heimbaugh, a Philadelphia solo practitioner who won a favorable decision in the court's case of Commonwealth versus Shaw. In Shaw, the court held that criminal defendants in actions under Pennsylvania's Post-Conviction Relief Act, or PCRA, can challenge their appellate counsel's ineffectiveness for the first time on appeal. Shaw marks a limitation of the court's earlier cases, holding essentially that although defendants have a right to effective PCRA counsel, they have no mechanism to enforce it. What's more, its reasoning might crack the door for future petitioners to roll back those cases and provide a broader mechanism going forward. Let's listen. Our guest today is Terry Heimbaugh, a solo practitioner located in Philadelphia. Attorney Heimbaugh is a litigator and focuses her practice on criminal appeals, post-conviction actions, and civil rights actions in federal and Pennsylvania courts alike. She's also an adjunct professor at Montgomery County Community College, where she's taught criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, and juvenile law. Attorney Heimbaugh has served as a board member for numerous charitable, civic, educational, and legal organizations, and has given innumerable lectures and media appearances regarding her areas of practice and other areas of interest. Attorney Heimbaugh, welcome to the Standard of Review. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Before we get into Shaw proper, can you tell me just a little bit about how and why you became an attorney and settled on your practice? Certainly. I got a law degree from New England School of Law and then went to American University Washington College of Law to get a legal master's degree in international human rights law. However, I recognized the fact that there was really no effective way to have a financial basis for a practice doing just international human rights law. And while I was working with Amnesty International, I made a prison visit for a death row inmate. And this is the first time I had ever been in a prison. I had never even seen a prisoner, had never had any experience from that. I'm from Colorado, very rural uh, upbringing. And uh, as I was being walked through the prison yard, the correctional officer was busy telling me about what they did to the inmates and how that they were testing chemicals on the inmates uh, and that the inmates uh, had not given informed consent, but they had bargained away various misconducts that they would have received in exchange for their being guinea pigs. And I thought to myself, well, this is the United States. How can that happen? And it immediately made me interested in prisoner civil rights work. I started doing prisoner civil rights work when I moved up to Philadelphia. And we moved to Philadelphia primarily because at that time in the early 90s, if you wanted to do civil rights work, it was either here or L.A. where the hot areas were. And Philadelphia was was more in tune with the way I wanted to live moved to Philadelphia and started doing police misconduct and prisoner rights work. Primarily police misconduct work was what was the firm paying clients. The prisoner civil rights work was done more on a pro bono basis because there really was not a lot, were not a lot of attorneys who did work in that area. As I started doing the prisoner civil rights work more and more and more, my name got better well known in the prisons And in order to fund my pro bono work during the prisoner civil rights work, I started taking on uh, criminal appeals. 
I didn't limit myself to homicides, but it kind of that turned out to be what I ended up doing. And so I have been doing predominantly homicide appeals for the last oh, 25 years or so. Yeah, so really at the sort of the tip top of the uh, criminal practice area on none of the appeals in the post-conviction area, but the ensuing uh, civil rights violations that are pretty, pretty wild in Pennsylvania in some instances. Correct. Correct. And it's, it's one side is, you know, the civil rights work is just the flip side of the criminal appellate work. The same constitutional provisions, the Sixth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, uh, those things still are, are, you know, applicable in both settings. The, the procedural requirements and how you work your way through them is different, but the concepts are the same. So let's get into uh, Shaw. What are the essential facts of the case? And since this was a post-conviction case, after all, where did initial counsel sort of falter? Okay, this is a, procedurally, this is important because it fills in a gap. Basically, what happened here is that Mr. Shaw uh, went to trial and his trial attorney filed a notice of alibi. And the notice of alibi is supposed to give the Commonwealth uh, information about who the alibi witnesses are and what the actual alibi is during the relevant time periods. The trial attorney had himself written the notice of alibi, but had not actually interviewed the client or the alibi witnesses prior to writing and filing that notice. And as a result, the notice was inaccurate. Uh, according to the notice, it had two had the the petitioner, Mr. Shaw, in the presence of both two of the alibi witnesses, both alibi witnesses, at the same time, when in fact he was with one in the morning and one in the afternoon. This wasn't caught until trial. At the trial stage, they put one of the witnesses, the alibi witnesses, on the stand, and the prosecutor cross-examined her with the notice of alibi. Uh, indicating that it's not, in fact, isn't it, in fact, true that you were not present with this other person and Mr. Shaw all at the same time. And because this is the way that the notice was written by counsel, it, it was incorrect and it wasn't based on what the, the witness would testify to. Counsel objected to the prosecutors trying to impeach the veracity of the alibi witness. The trial court overruled the objection. And then the prosecutor went on to ask more questions about impeaching that particular witness about her not being present and how the entire alibi fell apart, essentially, because of the assertion that both of the alibi witnesses were there with Mr. Shaw at the same time. Counsel uh, objected. He had a sidebar conference. He moved for a mistrial. The judge basically told him, well, that's too bad and that it's, it's already in and she's allowed to, to, the prosecutor's allowed to use this. And the prosecutor used it for purposes of the closing argument to highlight to the jury that you couldn't believe that this guy really wasn't involved uh, because his alibi was so incredible. And this was an identification or misidentification case. There wasn't physical evidence. Um, there weren't uh, uh, extensive eyewitnesses. There wasn't videotape. There wasn't a lot of forensic evidence. It really relied on a credibility determination. So what ended up happening is that he was found guilty and he went on his direct appeal, and then he filed for PCRA, his first timely PCRA. 
And during the PCRA proceedings, there were a variety of claims that were raised, including a claim related to the alibi notice. The court, the PCRA court, granted an evidentiary hearing on just the alibi notice claim. And halfway through the PCRA proceedings, the court allowed PCRA counsel to essentially amend his PCRA to readjust the claim of trial counsel ineffectiveness for failing to amend the alibi notice prior to trial, removing reference to the, the one individual who wasn't present at that time. The hearing went on. Trial counsel gave testimony elicited by PCRA counsel that essentially he was unaware of the law. He thought the law didn't allow for this, and he didn't uh, indicate that he had any tactical reason for not having corrected the defective alibi notice. After the PCRA hearing was over, I was retained, and I was retained after the 1925B notice was filed. When an appeal is filed from a PCRA, you have the notice of appeal, and then the PCRA court will usually ask for a 1925B statement of matters complained of on appeal. PCRA counsel completed the 1925B notice of statements complained of on appeal and only included two of the claims and did not include the claim that he had amended into the PCRA hearing about the alibi notice. When I got it, it was post having done the 1925B, and I filed a brief with the Superior Court arguing that because of the fact that this PCRA counsel didn't include this claim in the 1925B, that he should be found ineffective for failing to preserve the claim of trial counsel ineffectiveness. It was a serial ineffectiveness claim. And just to give a little bit of background, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania and the Superior Court's decisions in this area, they certainly at least suggest that litigants in, in that position are, I mean, they're essentially out of luck, right? I mean, before this case. Yes. Well, actually, they're, they're out of luck for, there's no constitutional right and no statutory right in Pennsylvania to effective PCRA counsel. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. And because of that, the federal courts have come up with kind of a, a, a quick fix when PCRA counsel is ineffective, mostly when they abandon claims, but when they're ineffective as well. And that's through Martinez versus Ryan. And Martinez versus Ryan allows the federal court to look at claims that PCRA counsel either abandoned or was ineffective on. However, Martinez versus Ryan specifically indicates, and its progeny specifically indicates, that it does not apply to appellate PCRA counsel. In other words, the attorney who is representing the client post-PCRA to the superior court. Now, the PCRA attorney in Mr. Shaw's case remained as appellate PCRA counsel for purposes of the 1925B. And therefore, Martinez versus Ryan would not even apply to the claim that, that was not raised because he was acting as appellate PCRA counsel at the time. So while the federal court kind of fixed this niche where the state is lacking to ensure effective PCRA counsel, there was a complete gap 
where there was no review by either state or federal of appellate PCRA counsel. So this filled that gap and required that even appellate PCRA counsel must be effective. And after you filed a brief with the Superior Court essentially saying, hey, there is a gap here, let's fill it by creating a remedy, what does the Superior Court say? Well, the Superior Court actually kind of jumped the gun a bit and and made the ultimate determination that PCRA counsel was ineffective, as well as trial counsel was ineffective. They were in a position to have judged whether trial counsel was ineffective because they had the PCRA hearing where trial counsel testified about his lack of tactical basis for this. But they did not have any evidence at that point as to PCRA counsel or his, at the time, appellate PCRA counsel's ineffectiveness. So the Superior Court had gotten ahead of itself a bit. Uh, It was appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, yes, we agree there is a lack in the law that appellate PCRA counsel should have a means to review to ensure that they're effective. But they're going to send it back down to the PCRA court for a hearing on whether or not appellate PCRA counsel was effective. So, and I just want to talk a little bit about the differences in the the court itself, I guess, in the pre-Martinez cases, right, where the court says, well, on the one hand, we have this rule-based right to effective assistance of counsel, but the PCRA is so concerned with finality and certainty as to the case must end that we're just going to eviscerate that right by saying there's no way to vindicate it at all, and then changing the composition of the court The people who sort of dissented from that, the justices who dissented from that point of view pre-Martinez are, frankly, they're the authors of the majority opinion in this case, where they seem to be saying, well, the right is there and maybe it's better to enforce it than not. Yeah, I think that they aired, I argued, fundamental fairness, that if you couldn't get review in state court and you couldn't get review in federal court, then you couldn't ensure effective assistance of appellate PCRA counsel. The, the pre-cases, that the Henkel cases and the others that were relied on by the Commonwealth in arguing against this, basically said that, you know, well, PCRA counsel, you don't have to have any special statute or any special, you know, rules that they're effective because PCRA, the judges, will look over the PCRA attorney's work and ensure that they're acting effectively. Is there any indication that that's actually occurring? That's that's really, really rare. I mean, the only time I ever see the P, the judges on PCRA do anything in order to evaluate PCRA counsel effectiveness is in the court-appointed Finley letter area to determine whether or not a Finley has, has been properly properly filed. But other than that, it's not feasible for PCRA judges to be able to to determine, for example, in this case, uh, whether or not a claim should have been raised or not. Uh, They're not in a position to know that. Only counsel would be in a position to know that. And it's kind of a perversion of the role too, right? I mean, it's very difficult to be a third-party neutral and an advocate, you know, uh, identifying and, and advancing claims at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about is those Henkel and sort of pre-Henkel cases that really emphasized finality. I think I remember one of the justices citing a poem about sort of recursion theory and how if we allowed ineffectiveness claims uh, against PCRA counsel generally, it would just lead to never-ending litigation. I don't know if you were practicing when the PCHA was in practice, but is there 
reason to think that these cases just go on forever without this kind of a bar? And does that even matter because we're headed into federal court in that event anyway? Well, I think that the, the PCRA finality of the, the jurisdictional requirement that of one year from the date the judgment of sentence becomes final to file your PCRA really has really limited the serial PCRAs. Now, of course, if you ha- file a, new, a, a second or successive PCRA, it has to be based on one of the three exceptions to the timeliness rules. And those are very strictly enforced. So I don't think anyone's getting away with filing multiple PCRAs claiming ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, you get your one stab at it, and then you get in state court, and you get another stab at it, essentially, in federal court. But the federal review is such that it's very hard to get relief if, you're not, if you don't have good basis in, in state court. So is, 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 I don't think that there's the kind of abuse that was prior PCHA, that, that was PCHA prior to PCRA. At that time, when you could file as many PCRAs as you wanted to, claiming as many ineffective assistance of counsel claims, it, I think litigation do, it did go on forever and ever and ever, and there was no finality. But the way that it's, it's set out now, there is distinct finality. And one other thing I, I kind of wanted to touch on from the opinion, I, I thought it was really interesting. Chief Justice Saylor wrote the opinion, and he is sometimes sphinx-like in his <laughs> in his work for the court. There was a, a passage where he talked about the state courts having an interest in adjudicating the issue, at least where there's no federal overlay, right, from Martinez. And I, I wonder to what degree each of those components of that sentence are carrying weight there. Are, are we suggesting that there is that Pennsylvania has an interest in adjudicating these things such that maybe we need to open up some of these earlier cases, these pre-Ryan cases, uh, pre-Henkel cases? Uh, or are we saying, well, hey, if there's a gap here, we'll fill it but we're not going to go back and you know, open up the, pre- the previous case. I think it's, it's, it's what you're saying in the latter, that, that they're not going to reopen, that they're willing to look at this particular gap. And I, I got the distinct feeling from the, the reading of it that they, they really understood the fundamental fairness aspect of this. That they're not concerned, you know, I, and I also think that they also were, were sending a message to the state legislature that, hey, if you want to put protections in to require PCRA and appellate counsel PCRA counsel effectiveness, you should have put this in. And because you have not, this is why we must do this. So what happens to Mr. Shaw at this point? Well, we have a hearing that is scheduled in a couple months where we will be bringing appellate PCRA counsel in to testify on the very narrow subject of whether or not he had a reasonably objective tactical basis for not including the alibi notice claim in the 1925B statement. The Supreme Court also directed us to argue uh, the ultimate issue of whether or not trial counsel's error prejudiced the case. So it's going to be a hearing uh, for evidentiary purposes in some part and argument in some part. One of the interesting features I thought was, although it wasn't really the issue before it, the court did talk a little bit about this kind of bizarre practice of impeaching a witness based on the attorney's uh, mistaken characterization of what the testimony would be. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. From a, just a, a lay person's perspective, if I was just looking at this as an average Joe, I would say, well, if the attorney wrote it, how can it be held against anyone but the attorney? And that makes kind of logical sense. But the law is not necessarily as logical as the the average person. And basically, 
Um, what the law is, is it says that, well, in a case with an alibi, if the defendant does not testify and he wants to rescind that alibi, they can't use the notice against him. But if you have an alibi and you do testify, it's fair game. Uh, and again, that goes kind of against contrary to, to intuition that it, you know, it's one thing if you had the client verify or sign the alibi notice. But here it's just the attorney. And oftentimes because of the timing that the alibi notice must be filed, oftentimes the attorneys have not really done all of the prep that they need to do. They've been told by the client, oh, because this is early on usually in the, in the representation, oh, I've got this alibi. And they, they get kind of a, a, a summary of, of what they think that the alibi is. They don't talk to the alibi witnesses before they write the notice. And they wait until just before the trial to talk to the alibi witnesses and find out, ooh, that's not exactly accurate. And that is one of the dilemma that occurs when you don't talk to your witnesses and do pretrial preparation early on when you've got alibis. So, Attorney Heimbaugh, you've got something of a, a prolific set of board memberships, lectures, and so on. Is, is there anything you'd like to promote today? Well, actually, I, I would. Over COVID, we decided to put together a, what will become and is in the process of becoming a nonprofit. It's called the Police Transparency Project. It is a database on a website that is designed to provide public access to information about misconduct by uh, police officers. And in particular, we started this because about seven or eight years ago, I started noticing doing all of the Philadelphia homicides that I do, a pattern of practice among the homicide detectives that was an unconstitutional uh, interrogation practices. And I started keeping names of cases and of detectives and started out as a list that grew to a Word document that drew to an Excel spreadsheet that ultimately became the Police Transparency Project. We now have it accessible so that an attorneys, defendants, family members can access the database and can get information that they would not previously have been able to obtain easily because majority of it is non-public uh, and it's not accessible about, for example, suspensions or other uh, behavior on the part of detectives or police officers that made them be placed on the do not call list or makes them uh, incredible and that they should not have been called. There's a good number of cases that are currently being reviewed by the Conviction Integrity Unit of the Philadelphia DA's office that involve uh, application of the facts uh, that are set forth in the uh, pattern of practice. It's a seven or eight part list of behaviors that is consistent. So we're, we put this together. My daughter has a master's degree in social work administration. And so this is right up her alley. And so she is the managing director. And we are currently in the process of doing, trying to get more information from attorneys and in defendants and family members and updating the database. This is something that has become the database and keeping this sort of information has become very critical uh, in cities throughout the country uh, because as we face the need for police transparency, 
Uh, we need to know not only what is in these police officers' backgrounds that makes them in, should make them in, in, uh, accessible or uh, not to be called as witnesses, but also because we want to gain trust in our criminal justice system. And if we don't know about what's going on and why these, these individuals, things that they've done in their past that they've been found responsible for doing and violating people's constitutional rights, if we don't know about that, we are going to end up having them continue to do this same practice for years and years and years to come. And that's, I mean, that's critical, especially given that police work and police departments and records are often pretty, pretty darn balkanized when you, uh, when, when you look at it. Exactly. Uh, where can folks uh, access that? People can find that on the database, which is at www.thepolicetransparencyproject.com. We also have a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we have a GoFundMe, uh, which we are trying to, uh, to fund so that we can hire a full-time database person to be able to input all of the information that we are continuing to get. This is a project where we initially started with about 30 to 40 entries, and we are well over several hundred entries at this point. This is also something that has been covered in part by the Philadelphia Inquirer in a series of articles in May that outline uh, a lot of what we're doing with the with the database and the need for the database. Excellent. Attorney Heimbaugh, uh, thank you for your, your work in general in Shaw on this project, and uh, thank you for joining us today on the Standard of Review. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this episode of the Standard of Review. If you like what you've heard and you want to hear more, you can subscribe for new episodes in your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like to reach out with a topic or a guest uh, for a new episode, you can find us on the web at woodslawoffices.com or just search for Woods Law Offices on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Standard of Review. Thanks for listening to the Standard of Review. This episode has been brought to you by Woods Law Offices, raising the bar for Pennsylvania appeals. Check them out at woodslawoffices.com.